We've come to the very last part of the book of Zechariah. If you happen to be our guest this morning, let me, uh, let me kind of bring you up to speed a little bit. For the last several months, we have been working our way through what is known as the minor prophets in the Old Testament. There are 12 of them. Uh, they were minor because their books were short. And we're down to the last two, and, and, and Zechariah, we, we devoted three messages to him because I could not find a way to really condense that into one or even two messages. And so we're doing three, although I almost wish we'd have stopped at two. <laughs> I almost wish we'd have stopped at two. Uh, because uh, this section of Zechariah is very hard. If you've read it, you'll, you'll probably already know what I'm talking about. It's different than the first two sections of the book. The first two sections of the book are dated for us very clearly, two years apart, between chapters 1 and 6 and 7 and 8. And Zechariah's name is mentioned quite often in these first two parts of the, of the book. When we get to this third part, uh, Zechariah is not mentioned and there is no date for the book. And so, or for these, these last uh, six chapters... But people speculate that they are written near the end of Zechariah's life or the end of his ministry. One, one time marker would be the mention of Greece that you find in these last six chapters, which would put the book much later in, in date from the first part of the book. So suffice it to say, Zerubbabel's temple has been built. You'll remember that Haggai and, and, uh, and, and actually uh, Zechariah, they have been challenging the people of Israel to build the temple, to complete the temple. In fact, Zechariah has been God's promise to them that it won't be by power and it won't be by might, but by my spirit, that temple is going to be, be, be rebuilt and my presence will dwell in, uh, in Jerusalem once more. So when we get to this last part of the book of Zechariah, what, what, what is the focus? And it, it seems to be the issue of the long-awaited Messiah King that's been promised. Where is he? You know, when is he coming? And that seems to be the focus of these last six chapters of the book of Zechariah. Now, chapters 9 through 14 divide into two parts very neatly, very cleanly. There are two oracles, two, two writings, two statements, two talks, if you would, by, by Zechariah. And the division is chapter 9 through 11 and 12 through 14, so three chapters apiece. And they each, each part begins with the same phrase, the burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. So Zechariah is telling us that what God shares with him has been a burden to him. And he doesn't really elaborate on that. We don't know why it's a burden, but he found these, he found these words that God gave him to share to be somewhat of a burden for himself. Now, the division of the two talks is very easy to see, but exactly what Zechariah says in these last six chapters is, I would say, diametrically opposite with regard to its ease of understanding, right? As easy as the divisions are to see, what Zechariah says is, is hard to understand. It's a compilation of poems and metaphors and images that seem to bounce uh, all over time, which makes it hard to interpret, hard to, hard to press into any specific understanding. But over the centuries, as scholars have tried, there have been generally, this is all generally, okay, generally there have been two lenses through which people have interpreted these chapters. Now I want to share with you what those lenses are. The first one is this. People have looked at Zechariah 9 through 14 
uh, and the first prophecy in, in particular. In fact, both lenses look at the first prophecy, the first oracle, in pretty much the same way, that it's pointing to the ministry of the coming Messiah and that he is going to be rejected. He's going to be rejected and he is... Uh, He's going to be rejected, and he is going to come, and he is going to break sin. He's going to come and redeem us from our sinfulness, okay? Now, in this first lens, however, in light of that rejection, they see chapter 11 as pointing to God breaking his agreement with national Israel, but not the true Israel. Now, we've talked about this difference before, and I'm going to talk about it again for a moment because I think it's very important to get there is a difference between national Israel, that is all the biological descendants of Jacob, not even the biological descendants of Abraham, because Abraham uh, had two sons at first, and then he had a whole bunch of other sons uh, with uh, Geturah, and, uh, and only, only Jacob, I mean, excuse me, only Isaac was choken, chosen of, uh, of Abraham's sons to be the, the one who would fulfill the promises that God made to, to Israel. I mean, to, uh, to Abraham, and then of, of Isaac's sons, it was Jacob, and then, of course, Jacob's, uh, all of his sons together form a national Israel. And so there is a division in your Bible. Uh, there is a division. It's definitely there between national Israel and the nation that God formed and what Paul calls the true Israel. It's also, he's, that part's also called the remnant of times in your scripture. And the true Israel is the Israel that believes in Jehovah and by faith trust in Jehovah. So you have national Israel, and within national Israel, you'll have a smaller group of people, men and women, who put their faith in God. They put their faith in Jehovah and they follow him. So in Romans chapter 9, in verse 6, the Apostle Paul is answering the question, why is it that not all of Israel follows Jesus? If he's the Messiah, the one that everybody's been waiting for, why aren't people following him? And he says, well, it's because not all of Israel is Israel. That's, those are his words. Not all of biological Israel is God's true Israel by faith. And I tell you all that to say, when we get to chapter 11, verse 9, you know, God, God makes this statement through Zechariah. If you have your Bibles, you can follow along. And, and again, the context changes so quickly. But he says in verse 9, I will not shepherd you. What is to die, let it die. What is to be annihilated, let it be annihilated. Let those who are left eat one another's flesh. I took my staff, which I called favor, which God calls favor earlier, and he cuts it, and I cut it in pieces to break my covenant, which I have made with all the peoples. So it was broken on that day, and thus the afflicted of the flock who were watching me realized that it was the word of the Lord. And so po folks who look at Zechariah, uh, 9 through 14 through this lens say that the fulfillment of that chapter 11, 9 through 11, is found in, for instance, Hebrews chapter 8, verse 13, where the author of Hebrews says that God is giving us a new covenant and he has made the first obsolete, but whatever is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to disappear. Now, where this really takes on a difference is, is really through the, through the second oracle. In this first lens, the folks who see God breaking his covenant with national Israel and forming a new covenant would say that the text, the last oracle, anticipates God's final creation. 
all that God's going to do in the new heavens and the new earth and the new Jerusalem that's going to descend and be a part of the new world and, and that Christ would reign over that new and, and final kingdom and he would do so with his resurrected saints, his Israel. Now in that case, his Israel would not be biological Israel. His Israel would be both Jewish and Gentile. It would not be comprised just of Abraham's son by the flesh, that is by by natural birth, but it would be by Abraham's sons through the new birth. It would, be, uh, it would be God's Israel, Abraham's sons by faith. And this second oracle anticipates God's destruction of all of his enemies at the end. So in chapter 14, verse 9, it says, And the Lord will be king over all the earth. In that day the Lord will be the only one, and his name the only one. It looks to the new heaven and new earth, joining God's New, new heavens with that together. And Zechariah is pointing to that and painting a picture of that. And so Zechariah says in the second oracle things like this in chapter 14, verse 6. In that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. For it will, it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord. Neither day nor night, but it will come about that at the evening time there will be light. And so folks who look at Zechariah through this lens say, you see, that's what it says in Revelation 21 and 22, that there's not going to need to be any luminaries. There's not going to need to be a, a sun, moon, stars in, in God's future cre uh, creation because God himself will be the light. They would say Zechariah is pointing to that. Uh, in verse 8, it says, there would be rivers of living water flowing from Jerusalem. And in that day, living waters will flow out of Jerusalem, half of them towards the eastern sea and the other half towards the western sea. And they would say that points to the rivers of living water flowing out of the new Jerusalem in, in Revelation 21 and 22. In verse 11, it says, and people will live in it, that is in the new Jerusalem, and there'll be no longer, there'll no longer be a curse, for Jerusalem will dwell in security. And again, they would say the fulfillment of that, through this lens of looking at Zechariah, is talking about all that God's got planned in the, in the, final, in the final days when, when the new heavens and the new earth are established, okay, in Revelation 21, 22. That's one lens. So here's the other lens, if you're following me. Hope I'm not boring you. We're teaching, okay? <laughs> this is teaching today, so you're not allowed to be bored. All right, so here's the second lens that people look at Zechariah uh, 9 through 14. And in the second lens, they, they say that these chapters are focused on national Israel, okay? They're focusing on national Israel, not the new Israel by faith, not the Israel by faith at all, but national Israel. Now, they agree with the first lens as it comes, as it, as it relates to the first oracle. The first oracle does speak. Everybody agrees the first oracle is about the coming of Jesus and the fact that he would be rejected by, by Israel, national Israel. And everybody agrees with that, okay? But when you get to the second oracle is where, where this lens changes. And so in this lens, then, what we're seeing in the second oracle is really not about the new heavens and the new earth. It's not about Israel by faith. It's not about believers in the Lord Jesus you know, whether Gentile or Jews, but it's really about national Israel. And so what we're reading in those last three chapters are about the restoration of national Israel, where God will, will rule through Israel over all the nations of the earth, and Jesus will inaugurate a thousand-year reign on this earth from Israel and from Jerusalem with a, a rebuilt temple. 
So you can imagine these, these two lenses through which to look at, especially the second oracle, are, are going to lead you to a, a little bit different interpretation. And again, we've already talked about uh, how difficult this book is in so many ways because it's poems and images and met metaphors, okay? So this morning, listen to me carefully, I'm not going to try to convince you to look through either lens. Now, I, I, have, a, I have a preferred lens that I believe is the one that God would want us to look at it through, but I'm not, I think we'll talk about that. Oh, I think my lens will probably come out in some of the things I'm going to say. Neither am I going to try to take us through these six chapters and try to help you understand what they mean, because to be quite honest with you, I, I don't know. You know, Billy Rickman told me this morning, he said, you know, I read this. I have absolutely no idea how you're going to say anything that makes any sense. And, uh, you know, and I, I think he said it somewhat like that, right? But it's, just, it's kind of how I feel as well. In fact, if you go back and read, especially if you, if you look at Zechariah through that second lens, you go back 50 years, 40 years, 30 years, 20 years, everybody's changing what everything means. Because everybody's trying to say, this is, about, this is about our history now, this is about literal Israel, and so this is what this means, and this is what this means, but then 10 years from now, that didn't happen, so it means something else, right? So for me, trying to tell you what all those specific things mean, I'm just not going to try to... I'm not going to try to do that, but here's what I'd like to do for the next few minutes. This is a book that's, that's quoted quite often and quite extensively in our New Testaments, and there are four major quotations from this book. So what I'd like to do is spend a few minutes and look at those four quotations that our New Testament brothers and sisters put into the New Testament and what they meant, and, and that's what we're going to do, Okay. So let's look at the four of them. There's four, there's four passages from Zechariah 9 to 14 that the authors of the New Testament, and, and not just the authors of the New Testament, but our Savior himself, picked up from this book and said, this is what this means. The first one is in chapter 9, and it begins in verse 9. And the early Christians saw this as a reference to Jesus. They saw Zechariah telling them that Jesus, would, Jesus was the fulfillment of what it says in verse 9. In verse 9 of chapter 9 says this, Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He's just and endowed with salvation, humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. In the fulfillment of that, Matthew 21, 5, John 12, 15, both say that on Palm Sunday, which is not too far off, when Jesus came into Jerusalem to offer himself as king, he came riding on a donkey, and he came fulfilling this passage. And so the New Testament writers say Jesus is the, is the Messiah that's mentioned in Zechariah chapter 9, and, and verse 9. And you remember, Jesus did that. He came riding in on a donkey. And you wonder why everybody went so crazy over him doing that. It's because they understood it. They understood that this was the offering of Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. The early Christians would have continued on. And, and, and again, I guess I can't say this categorically, but it seems pretty obvious to me that they would have continued on. And the very next text says this, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem and the bow of war will be cut off and he will speak, talking about this one riding in on a donkey, he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the river. Now, I think the New Testament Christians, and again, these are these two lenses, all right, that I was talking about. I think they would have seen that as Jesus fulfilling that when he comes into Jerusalem. 
He was the king who spoke peace to the nations. And let me tell you what he did. He brought peace between Jews and Gentiles, making us one in Christ, removing, it says, numerous times the division between us. And by the way, I don't think any of you in this room are Jewish. You're all Gentiles. You were all excluded from the, from the first covenant. You were all not part of the original Israel, okay, the national Israel. But you are part of the true Israel. You are part of God's sons of Abraham by faith. And I believe that what the New Testament writers following right along would have said, this is reference to what Jesus did on the cross. He brought unity between the nations. And not only that, he brought peace to us with God. And I think they would have interpreted that speaking peace to the nations, both speaking of his, of his, the peace that he brought between us and God and the peace he brought between all of us in, you know, in his kingdom work, in his new, in his new covenant work. I think they would have interpreted the next verse that follows right after that, verse 11. You read it with me and see if you wouldn't say the same thing. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I have set your prisoners free from the dry cistern. You say, what does that mean? Well, the dry cistern thing is, remember, that's where they held Jeremiah when they put him in prison. Cisterns were places where they held water, and when they were dry, you couldn't get out of them, so they'd put prisoners down in there. So metaphorically, what it says in verse 11 is, this Messiah is coming, and the blood of the covenant with you that he's going to make, he's going to set the prisoners free. And I think that's talking, I think the New Testament believers would have understood that. He's talking about the fact that he came to set you and me free from our sin, from the penalty of sin, from death. Yes, we're going to die, but we're not going to die the second death. We're going to live. And he came to set us free from the penalty of our sin. That's the covenant that Jesus made with us in his blood. That's what he did. It's the new covenant. And I think they would have seen in verse 11, you know, the new covenant. And then the last part of that, going back up to before verse 11, he says, and his dominion would be from sea to sea and into the ends of the earth. I think the early Christians would have said, yes, the reign of our king is from the ends of the earth. He reigns over all the earth, over the hearts of anyone, whosoever will. He reigns in their hearts, and one day he's going to reign over all the earth. And we'll talk about that at the very end. The next passage is Zechariah chapter 11, verses 9 through 11. Excuse me, in 9 through 11 is the part where he says he's going to take his staff, which he calls it favor, and he's going to break it, and he's going to break his covenant with them. And everybody hears that, and they, and they, and they mourn over that. And then in verse, the next verse, verse 12, here's where they quote the prophecy. Okay, here's where they quote Zechariah in the New Testament. If it's good in your sight, give me my wages. Zechariah says this, and he's obviously talking in the context of delivering this message. But if not, never mind. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages, which, by the way, wasn't what he was supposed to be due, right? It was less than he was due. Then the Lord said to me, that is Zechariah, throw it to the potter, that magnificent price at which I was valued by them. In other words, God saw this as them valuing him at only worth 30 pieces of silver, okay? So I took the third, this is Zechariah, so I took the 30 shekels of silver and threw them to the potter in the house of the Lord. Then I cut in pieces the second staff called Union to break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. I do not know what all of that means. All I know is that this passage right here, the New Testament writers took it and they said, that is picturing what Judas would do to Messiah, 
where he would take our king and he would betray our king for 30 pieces of silver. He would say that the king was not worth, they would say the king, remember the Jewish religious leadership are the ones that are paying, he was valued at only 30 pieces of silver. And when Judas betrayed Jesus, the Messiah, he took those 30 pieces of silver and he threw them in the temple. And the early Christians said, that is Zechariah pointing to what Judas would do. The third passage is, is, is in chapter 12, verse 10. And, and in this passage, they see Jesus, the crucified one. In verse 10, it says, I will pour out, this is chapter 12, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Now John 19 and Revelation both take that passage and they apply it. In John 19, the, uh, the soldier at the cross looks at Jesus, and it says, and this is to fulfill what is said in Zechariah, they looked on him whom they had pierced. And then in Revelation, it's talking about in the future how all men will see the Son of God, the one, on whom, the one who was pierced, Revelation chapter 1. So here, here's my simple point with that. The authors of the New Testament are saying, this is Jesus. This Messiah in Zechariah is Jesus. He's the one that was pierced. He's the one that was pierced on the cross with nails and by the spear for us. That is a reference to the Lord Jesus. Now, if, uh, let me, I'm, I said I wasn't going to do this, but I lied. I'm going to do it. All right, let me talk about the first lens and second lens as to how we, how we look at this passage and what it means, right? Because what it says is that Jesus is the one that they pierced, right? But what does that mean? Through the first lens, people see that as, as Pentecost. They see the fulfillment of that as Pentecost, okay? And, uh, and what happens there at Pentecost is they looked on, when, when the spirit of grace came, all right, I will pour it on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace. They would say, well, that would be the fulfillment of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was poured out. And when he did, you remember that as Peter preached, people, people all along, all around responded to what Peter said. They would say, well, that's the fulfillment of that. Verse 13 goes on to say, in that day, a fountain will be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and impurity. And they would say that it was in that day that the grace of God was through the Lord Jesus was poured out as a fountain to give us cleansing from our sin and impurity. I know we sang it last week, but it has been on my heart all week as I've been preparing this. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and those who are plunged beneath the flood wash all their guilty stains, right? And so in the first lens, people would see it that way. The second lens, would people would see this as a, a future fulfillment, that God will pour out on the house of David, the nation of Israel, and, and, and they will look on him whom they have pierced when the Spirit does this. And they will mourn, and they will turn back to the Lord in, uh, in great numbers for the cleansing of the house of David in the future. The final passage is Zechariah 13, 7 through 9. And this is the one that Jesus himself says, this is me. This is me. In verse 7, it says, chapter 13, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, 
and against the man, my associate, declares the Lord of hosts. Strike the shepherd that the sheep may be scattered, and I will turn my hand against the little ones. And it will come about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish, but the third will be left in it, and I will bring the third part through the fire, refine them as silver is refined, and test them as gold is tested, and they will call on my name, and I will answer them, and I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. Well, Jesus took that very prophecy right there, and he declared it to be true of him in the garden that night when they came to arrest him, and he said, strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. This is what was prophesied. In other words, this is what we're seeing happen here. And if we were to continue that, if we were, I'm not saying it's necessarily the case, but if it were, if we were to continue that with that same sort of thought, then, then the, the two-thirds that are cut off and perish most likely refers to Israel, national Israel, and the one-third and the one-third that is spared and left would be the third that he goes to refine through fire and, and refines them like silver, tests them like gold, and they will call on my name and I will answer them and I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is my God. So that could be a prophecy relating to us, the body of Christ, you know, the, the Jews and the Gentiles who come out of that scattering, trusting Christ, going through the refining fire, which the New Testament says over and over again that we do, going through the refining fire to come out and be his people and he to be our Lord. That's all four passages. So what do we conclude from those four references in the New Testament? One thing for sure, it's this, that the early Christians used Zechariah 9 through 14. To, uh, as a lens through which to understand the story of Jesus. Now, whether they, the second part, however they understood the second part, you know, I don't know. But the first part, it's like everybody seemed to get it. The first part was about Jesus. And the New Testament writers understood that. Mark Black, who's a professor at Lipscomb University, wrote his dissertation on this very question, the gospel use of, of Zechariah 9 through 14. And here's the way he summarized what they did. He said, what the early church discovered after being led to Zechariah 9 through 14 is a whole eschatological schema. Now, that's a, those two big words. Basically, that means what they discovered was a whole final judgment destiny plan, which involved, those are my words, his words were eschatological schema, or schema, which involved the sending of Messiah his subsequent rejection, suffering, death, the repentance, the cleansing, the restoration which would follow his death, and the resurrection of the saints that would follow in the messianic kingdom, whether that's the thousand-year reign of Christ in this earth or whether that's the final culmination kingdom of all things, right? They saw Zechariah 9 through 14 in many ways as the earthly ministry of Jesus, and they found great encouragement in that. All right, I'm going to end, and, and I've got, uh, I'm going to end, wow, 20 minutes up. Uh, I, I've said that before, though, I'm going a little bit farther, don't I? So, uh, all right, I'm going to end, and I've got, I got two final applications for us, and they really are short and sweet, or two, two final things that I'd like to say about Zechariah 9 through 14 as it applies to the family here today. Okay, here's the first one. Um, this is the takeaway. God has already sent the promised Messiah. Now remember, when Zechariah is speaking this, the coming of Jesus is hundreds of years away. Hundreds of years away. 
But for us today, we're looking back. And so here's the takeaway. God has already sent the promised Messiah, the promised king, to whom Zechariah is pointing in these chapters. And his name is undoubtedly Jesus. One thing everyone agrees with, the king that Zechariah is referencing has come, and his name is Jesus. Jesus was the humble king who came riding on a donkey. Jesus was the God king who was betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Jesus was the king who by his blood, the blood of his covenant, he would set prisoners free. Jesus was the king who in that day opened the house of David and more and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to a fountain for the cleansing of sin. And that fountain is drawn from Emmanuel's veins. Jesus was the king who spoke peace to the nations, a peace that they can have with God and with one another in him. So the takeaway for that this morning is this. You can be forgiven today. I don't care what you've done. I don't care who you are. I don't know what brought you here. I look around most of your family, right? But, but even if you're family, this can be true. You can be hiding, you can be hiding a broken heart. You can be hiding a heart that's not right with God, and you know it's not right with God. So here's the takeaway. I'm telling you, Jesus has come so that we can all be forgiven, so that we can all have a right relationship with God. I mean, Jesus came and, and he bore the rejection of the nation of Israel. He bore their rejection. So whatever in the future might happen might be, but he bore that rejection so that we can be born again, so that we can be forgiven, so that all of our sins can be cleansed. And this morning as I'm practicing, I'm saying, Lord, this, uh, how can I make such an appeal on such a message? But I make the appeal nonetheless. This is your morning to turn to Christ. This is your morning to believe on the Lord Jesus, to receive him as your Savior and follow him and be forgiven. So if you're here this morning and you need to be forgiven, this is your morning. This is your time. Now, the second takeaway comes, that was from the first oracle. This is from the second. Here's, here's the second thing. Jesus, as this God king whom Zechariah references, will redeem the world and will establish a kingdom where he and he alone is king where he and he alone is Lord. Verse 9 of chapter 14. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. He's not going to rule just over Jerusalem or over Israel. He is going to rule the whole earth will be his domain. The whole earth will be his, his people and his land. And that day, the Lord will be the only one and his name the only one. And it's going to be a kingdom where his dominion, and these are quotes, it will be a, his, his dominion will be from sea to sea and to the ends of the earth. It'll be a kingdom where people dwell secure and there will be no more curse. Listen, whatever lens you're looking through doesn't matter. Listen to me. I mean, second lens, first lens, doesn't matter. What I'm saying is true. It will be a kingdom where people dwell secure and there'll be no more curse. And it'll be a kingdom where living waters flow from Jerusalem and men live forever, never to die again. Never to die again. It'll be a kingdom where everyone loves the king and follows and worships the king. I said it this morning in prayer meeting. I, I long for the day when my heart is, 
is fixed and my spirit is fixed and I don't struggle with sin anymore. I am regenerated. I am a new man. Christ has redeemed me, but yet I struggle. I long for the day when I don't struggle anymore. When, 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 I, when selfishness dies in me and, and I really, the, the, the heart desire is going to be to prefer everyone as more important than myself. I won't ever struggle with what I want versus what other, other people want. You say, that's going to be a terrible day. No, it's not. It's going to be a wonderful day. A wonderful day when everything is renewed and like the Lord wanted it to be from the very beginning, except that our sin corrupted it. It'll be a kingdom where living waters flow. It'll be a kingdom where everyone loves the king. And the takeaway is you can be a part of the kingdom this morning. I'm serious. You can be a part of the kingdom. This is my same takeaway from the first half, actually, because it's not just that my sins are forgiven. It's that God promises a whole new world. Sounds like a Disney song, doesn't it? A whole new world, right? But that's what God has promised us. That's our hope. So we're looking forward to a whole new world where Jesus is King and Lord and everything is redeemed and fixed and sin is done away with and no more Florida shootings and no more, and no more murder period, no more lying, no more deceit, no more poverty, no more any of the things that just diminish our world and diminish our relationships with one another. No more social media attacks against people who don't agree with me. By the way, by the way, I just got to say, do you know that your, your Facebook is, is a, it's an echo chamber? Did you know that? In other words, the people that you're posting to are just people that agree with you. That's how Facebook has it, as an algorithm that you're just posting to the people that agree with you, and so everybody's just frenzying everybody else up. And if you want to post anything, you ought to post stuff about our returning king and how he's going to fix everything. You know, and, and so no more, no more of that. Will there be Facebook in the new kingdom? Maybe so. I don't know. Some people said no. <laughs> My, my point is this, my point is this, that you can be a part of God's kingdom today. Today you can be a part of God's kingdom. But you know what? Jesus, Jesus has purchased for you the forgiveness of your sins. He's paid the penalty of your sin. He took your death, and now he invites you to receive him. But you have got to receive him. You can't, you, you can't, you can't, you're not going to slide in on anybody else's coattails, whether it's your children's or your parents'. I mean, Jesus wants you to follow him personally. It's between you and him. And so I want to invite you to follow him. Lord Jesus, thank you for bearing in your own body our sin and for dying and rising that we might live. Lord, we bless your holy name. And I pray for my brothers and sisters that, Lord, we would be strengthened in our in our faith this morning. And for those that are here that maybe are not yet brothers and sisters, Holy Spirit, please help them, convict them, bring them, help them to see the truth, Lord, that they too might follow you. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Thanks for listening. This message has been brought to you by Bacon's Castle Baptist Church. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, please visit us on the web at www.baconscastle.com.